Hi everybody, and thanks for joining us for this podcast, which is the second in a short series of podcasts brought to you by the Royal College of Anaesthetists, looking at issues around the introduction of the 2021 curriculum for a CCT in anaesthesia. Uh, my name's uh, Oliver Pratt, I'm a consultant anaesthetist in Salford and a training programme director in the North West. And today I'm joined by two members of the college's curriculum development group. So I'm joined by uh, Dr. Aidan Devlin, who is consultant anaesthetist and college tutor at King's in London. And I'm also joined by Dr. Ben Shippey, who's a consultant in uh, NHS Tayside up in Dundee, uh, and who also has an interest in medical education. So hi, chaps. Thanks for joining us. Afternoon. Um, so as I said, this is the second podcast um, that we're doing about the curriculum. And I started on the last one by asking what uh, by asking each of my uh, guests or panelists, I suppose, uh, what they thought were the main differences between the 2021 curriculum and the 2010 curriculum. So perhaps I could ask each of you what you think the main difference will be uh, in terms of the way trainees experience training under the new curriculum. So do you want to go first, Aidan? Sure, yeah. Um, so I was a trainee under the uh, 2010 curriculum and uh, I'm now I'm sort of a trainer on the 2021 curriculum and I think uh, you do see things from a different angle. But as a trainee in the, in the old curriculum, I felt a lot of the time that I was doing a lot of assessments for the sake of it and I would do my learning as I was going along and then as I came to the end I would think oh better get some paperwork and I'd tick a few boxes and, and then I'd go to my ARCP and then everything would move along so I'm, I'm hoping that with the 2021 curriculum that, that you, you can never eliminate that mentality altogether but I'm hoping that um, the process of assessment under the new curriculum will become uh, more useful for learning rather than um, seen as a hoop to be jumped through. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the main that's the main change. I suppose the way that the training is organised will be um, will be different for people who are used to having very discrete units of training. Um, particularly in the last couple of years, I think our higher trainees will really um, really value the change in structure and allowing them to tailor their uh, their training to what they see themselves doing as a consultant. Thanks, Aidan. Ben, what do you think? Uh, Aidan, I couldn't agree more with you. I think I think those things are really important. Uh, I guess things that are important to me about the new curriculum are perhaps a move away from defining the activities of the anaesthetist around the surgical specialty that they're supporting uh, and moving towards uh, a curriculum which defines the activities and the skills and the capabilities of anaesthetists themselves. Uh, and I think that for us as a specialty is really important that we recognise the skill of anaesthesia rather than necessarily the skill of supporting a surgical discipline. And I, th I think that's a very positive move. I guess the other thing that is, is really important for me is that we have emphasized within the current, within the new curriculum rather much more than it was in the previous iteration of the curriculum. The activities of the anesthetist are not necessarily around the delivery of anesthesia, pain management, critical care medicine. Uh, and I think the stimulus of the General Medical Council to include some of those aspects of professional uh, performance, which are not necessarily about 
the technical skill of delivering anesthesia are really important. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of the non-technical aspects of performance and, and uh, activity in the realms of research, education, uh, quality improvement, uh, receiving the same amount of emphasis perhaps as, as, the, as the other aspects, the technical aspects of our, of our profession. I can take you both back slightly then, just to something that you, you said, Ben, there. So in the, one of the main things that trainees used to that old curriculum will notice is that there are no longer those subspeciality units of training, like neuro and cardiac and, and peds. So, Aidan, uh, do you want to start? What, what, what was the thinking behind that? Uh, well, in a lot of places around the country, um, those subspecialties exist in, in standalone hospitals and trainees were doing uh, multiple rotations, moving very frequently, finding they were never really getting um, embedded in a department um, to be trusted to do cases and to do QI projects and all those things that we wanted people to do. And they found it quite disruptive to their training. And, um, and in other places, um, trainees found that uh, having two blocks of neuro and two blocks of cardiac was um, uh, they were sort of relearning it the second time round, rather than building on what they learned the first time. Um, a lot of trainees also felt like they were marking time, I think, in the, t in the last two years in various subspecialties. So having to do cardiac in ST6 or ST7 when um, that wasn't necessarily the career trajectory going on. And, and although, you know, doing cardiac big cases um, can be useful for any anaesthetist, some people felt like they didn't have space in the, in the training program to um, develop their practice in, in a way that was useful for their for their future career. So I think having short or having one longer block of, of, of those specialties and allowing people to to tailor their their training a little bit more towards the end of the career um will be one of the the main sort of plus points to the new curriculum well presumably we're going to be able to pick up some of these things elsewhere in the in the curriculum as well are we are, you know during training people will be able to pick up neuro and cardiac competencies and and count those you know, outside specific defined discrete units. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, for most anaesthetists who don't do cardiac or don't do specialist neuro, um, you still need to be able to do neuroanesthesia. You still need to be able to do cardiac anesthesia, but in a different situation. Um, so you'll still have patients with aortic stenosis coming to have their hips replaced. Um, and we'll still have patients coming in with traumatic brain injuries to um, you know, the emergency department who need um, proper neuroanesthesia and transfer to a neuro unit. So those those are things you can learn anywhere in anesthetic practice and you can also take them with you into your future um, practice, which is why we've constructed the curriculum the way we have, which is um, that you can learn cardiac anesthesia in cardiac theatres, but you can also learn some of it in, in other places and that that's equally as, as valid. Okay. Ben, do you want to add anything to that? It's interesting that Aidan hasn't mentioned his superb review of the of the previous curriculum. In when was it? Two thousand fifteen. Yeah, that's right. When when we looked at the previous curriculum, we and, and we found a whole lot of duplication within it. And and I guess when you ask one set of anaesthetists, the vascular anaesthetists, to talk about some stuff, and you and you talk about the neuro to talk about some stuff. Some of that, some of that competence is necessarily going to overlap. And I guess for me, while it's really important that trainees in anaesthesia have a broad exposure to 
surgical procedures and understand the, the process of different surgical procedures. The skills that we bring to that process, as Aidan's just said, can be acquired anywhere. It, one lung ventilation is equally applicable uh, to the Ivor Lewis as it is to thoracic anesthesia, as it is to, to uh, major vascular work in the thorax. And it doesn't really matter where you acquire that skill of one lung anesthesia, provided that you can apply it in the surgical context. So streamlining some of that, providing a bit of flexibility of where that skill set is, is acquired, while trying to maintain a broad exposure to surgical disciplines, seems to make sense to us. So let's just move on away from some of the sort of clinical anesthesia training for a minute and just think about a bit more of the philosophy and the educational theory thinking that's gone into the development of the new curriculum. And maybe you'd like to start this one off, Ben, by, you know, explaining some of that thinking and philosophy that's been considered while the new curriculum has been in development. Yeah, thank you. The challenge here, of course, is not going to be to deliver you a lecture. And I guess, I guess two things are really important to me about this. And one is what I would call granularity. I think what I mean by that is that the, the previous iteration of the curriculum was, was very high resolution in terms of its granularity. Uh, and the skills and knowledge that were specified within the curriculum arguably were over-prescriptive. Um, we, we chopped it up into, into very small chunks and it, in parts it didn't really form uh, an impression of the, of the totality of practice. And I think one of the important things that we've tried to do uh, in the new iteration of the curriculum is to try and group episodes of care or, 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 or parts of anesthetic practice into meaningful holes. And I, th and I think that's really important. The second thing perhaps is around, uh, it, it's similar, but it's about looking at the, the totality of practice and trying to develop uh, people as rounded people who understand that anesthesia is more than just a sum of a set of knowledge and skills. It is, there is a professional art to anesthesia. Uh, it is not necessarily easily graspable. It, it is difficult sometimes to define what, what the skill set of anesthetists is. Uh, and understanding that there are parts of anesthetic practice which are difficult to define, that are that rely on judgment uh, and experience, where knowledge and decision making is sometimes grey, is a really important aspect of looking at uh, what we're trying to deliver in the curriculum. I don't know what what Aidan thinks, but but I'll hand over. Uh, I I think it's going to be interesting to see how we. Uh assess those things, but also how we then support those trainees who need to develop those skills, because I think everyone knows in their head uh, which trainees might need a bit of support with those sorts of things. But because we haven't formally assessed them or formally tried to teach those sorts of things in the curriculum, um, I think we sort of hope that people will pick those things up by osmosis. Uh, and 
and I think the delivery of SIM and those kind of things try to um, go some way to, to tackle that, but you can avoid SIM if you're a trainee who's not very good at those things. You can you can sort of sidestep it or, uh, or if you're someone that doesn't want to deal with that particular problem. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how different hospitals around the country um, look to um, develop those skills in our trainees. Well, firstly, how they assess them using the tools that we give them and, um, and how they support their trainees um, who are possibly falling down in, in those areas. So um, I think that's quite um, interesting to see what, what comes out of that. I can expand on that a little bit. I think if I can just take you off on a little diversion, I've delivered a number of workshops now around professional attributes. And I've asked groups of people to think about the best member of their department and the worst member of their department and write down the three or four things that define them in terms of being either the best or the worst. And if you plot those against the concentric rings of knowledge, skills and attributes that underpins the GPC pit, bit from the GMC, you machine gun attributes. So people are not the best or the worst because they are highly skilled or highly knowledgeable. They are the best or the worst because they are engaged, because they are supportive, because they are lazy, because they are late. The challenge, as you've just alluded to, is it's really easy to measure knowledge. And we've got some measurement tools that are around skill. What we don't have so strongly is any measurement tools that are around values and attributes. And I think looking forwards as, as uh, through medical education as a discipline, the challenge for us is to have some metrics around values and attributes and start talking about things like values based recruiting. Uh, if we can do those things, because knowledge and skills are trainable, we're less clear where the values and attributes are. So that's what I, that was my my uh, comment on this was going to be You've both mentioned how difficult it is to assess these things, but with my training program director hat on, one of the things that's in the back of my mind is we've also got to train trainees now more thoroughly in team working, communication skills. And that's something that we as anaesthetists are, we, we've, we've doffed our caps towards that to a degree, but it's not something that perhaps we're or oh, somebody like me, I, I'm more comfortable talking about neuromuscular blockers than I am about communication skills. And I think there's going to be a whole load of new things which we as trainers need to pick up on as well, isn't there? Let, let's just let's just tease out or tease apart two things. And I think one of those is around non-technical skill, which is trainable. And if you look at Nikki Moran and Rona Flynn's work on ANTS, the anaesthetist non-technical skills system, you can put some metrics around that. You need some, you need some trainer training to be able to do that. But actually, we can put some metrics around non-technical skill. I think it's far more difficult to put metrics around values. I think it's more difficult to put metrics about the attributes of people that they bring to the job on a daily basis. One of the things that we have tried to do in the new curriculum is, is bring in multiple consultant reporting. And I think that that is, a, that is a step forward. I think the opinion of one's peers about what one is like as a professional 
as distinct from what is one is as a knowledgeable scientist or as a deliverer of anesthesia in a in a in a skill sense is really valuable and I, and I hope very much that multiple consultant reports will provide some subjective uh, opinion uh, on on those attributes and values of, of our trainees. I agree with you there. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of the multi multiple trainer reports because we know from the literature on the workplace-based assessments that we've been using for the last 10 years that um, the one which is the most useful is uh, multi-source feedback. But multi-source feedback is is it's feedback in the true sense in that it's feedback that's requested by the learner. So the learner asks various people to give feedback. Um, the multiple trainer report, I think, is deliberately not called feedback because um, as the trainers, we're asking other trainers to give their opinion of someone. So it's not really feedback in, in that sense, but um, it's also it's possible that some people never get asked to do an MSF because they're known to be strict or hard to please or but they might be the trainer that might give you the most useful feedback or the most useful um, advice for how you could develop. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of the multiple trainer reports because they I think they'll add a lot to the, the multi-source feedback uh, and the general assessment of the trainees. And I think they'll be particularly useful both those two that we've mentioned the multi-source feedback and the multi-trainer reports are going to be perhaps the key to evidencing the attainment in some of the generic professional capabilities aren't they I that's yeah. kind of the way I'm sort of predicting it if you like yeah, absolutely Just to take us back Aidan a, a step so um Ben already mentioned the survey that you did um which was exhaustive in fact uh which looked into what trainees and trainers thought of the 2010 curriculum and could you perhaps explain some of the key findings from that survey and how the college have attempted to address those within the new curriculum. Yes, yeah, so um, we did quite a big survey. We had about 3000 responses to this survey from trainers and trainees, and there were a lot of themes that came out to it, which we just saw again and again. Um, and the burden of assessments was one thing that was uh, that came up very frequently and, it was, and things were being done quite consistently around the country. And that was something that we tried to um, eradicate at the time and it is, I think with the new curriculum um, part of the reason well with the old curriculum part of the reason people felt there was a burden of assessment is that they didn't feel the assessments were useful and um, I think if you're doing something that's useful it doesn't feel like the burden um, and so part of what we've done with the new curriculum is try to change the assessment regime so that it can be part of learning rather than um, a hope to jump through and and, and by not setting a minimum number of assessments, uh, it, we're trying to get away from the idea that there are a fixed number of hoops to jump through. And once you jump through the hoops, then, um, then everything's done and, and you move on. We're trying to encourage people to learn in a more holistic way and to use the assessments to, uh, to document that learning as they go along. So the burden of assessments was one thing, the structure of training and repeated rotations um, and, this, and the, the sort of very inflexible nature of the previous curriculum was another was another um, recurring topic, especially in areas where people were doing um, very long blocks of subspecialties that that wasn't that they didn't necessarily want to pursue in their consultant career. Um, we talked a little bit about that already, but um, the, the concept of spiral learning was um, was thought to be a little bit inflexible in some areas and, and sometimes was driven more by the needs of um, the service uh, rather than 
um, the needs of, of trainees to, to learn things. So I think with the new curriculum, um, I think as anaesthetists, we like to have boxes to tick or we like to be told you must do X number of something or uh, you must make all of this go green on the uh, on the on the donut on the e-portfolio. But uh, we're trying to get away from that kind of prescriptive uh, element of things and, and making things more flexible, both for the needs of the trainees and, and for the hospitals that provide the training so that they can provide the training in the best way that they see fit. So I'm hoping that some of those things will um, will be uh, improved in the new curriculum. Do you think we've actually managed to achieve a reduction in that burden of assessments in the majority of cases? Um, I think we did a little, uh, we did a bit uh, in that some schools were asking for an assessment. So one of the, one of the, main things about the previous curriculum is that there were there were something like 800 pages in it and every part of so-called part of anesthesia was broken down into a tiny little um granule uh, you know can put an arterial line in wipes the skin before they put a cannula in all this you know it, not quite but almost and in some places trainees were being asked to do an assessment for every single part of the curriculum which wasn't ever the idea um but if you if you put something there people will uh, will want to do it um, and I, I think by writing the new curriculum in the way we have, which says by the end of this stage, you should be able to do this sort of case. Uh, I think that gives a, a better a, a better target for people to aim for rather than saying, well, I can put a cannula in, I can put an eye gel in, I can keep someone asleep and I can wake them up again. Uh, that's not, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you did a good anaesthetic, whereas the new curriculum is asking you saying you should be able to do a good anaesthetic for this sort of patient. Dr. Ship is bursting to get here. <laughs> no, I, I just wonder, Ollie, whether it would be acceptable for us to explore the concept of assessment, actually, in the construct of this conversation. I, I guess what I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking into some of my values and what I believe in answering that question. And I and I guess what underpins a lot of my thoughts about how we go about doing this is, is the strongly held belief that people that set out in a career in anaesthesia are in the vast majority intelligent, well-motivated, hard-working professionals, okay? And what, the, and what the curriculum needs to do is support those intelligent, capable, skilled, hardworking professionals to be excellent. And, and I'm not sure that you support them to be excellent by measuring it. I think you support them to be excellent by enabling iterative development of aspects of their performance. And I think if this curriculum is going to succeed, and I hope it does, we really need to shift away from using assessment. And, and perhaps that's what I mean by, can we just explore assessment? We need to move away from assessment as a measurement of performance towards using what I call developmental conversations to signpost aspects of performance to emphasize and aspects of performance that we need to work on and i and i really hope as as aiden has has alluded to i really hope that 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 developmental conversation between trainers and trainees preferably guided by the trainee rather than by the trainer 
or, or signposted by the trainee rather than the trainer, that we use those developmental conversations to, to drive iterative improvement in performance rather than labeling a performance as acceptable and sticking it in the portfolio. What we need to do is look at every bit of performance as we do once we're consultants. We, we look at what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and we reflect uh, and we conceptualize and, and, and we then go back and apply the things that we think might make what we are doing better. And if we can get that developmental conversation as a thing which happens regularly in an open, honest, constructive, forward-looking way, that's how we drive these brilliant people to be excellent. So that, that really is, that, that, that's what underpins everything I believe about this, is that we, we're taking very good people and we are trying to make them excellent, trying to help them scaffold that. Presumably what you've said there is behind the thinking about relabeling what we've always called workplace-based assessments and now call them structured learning events so that encourages that sort of, you know, thought of it, this being a, a, a learning experience rather than a workplace-based assessment. So it's always said that every day is a school day, right? And every day in anesthesia is an opportunity to get better. I'm slightly uncomfortable that some days might be structured learning days and other days might not be structured learning days. My belief is that every contact between a trainee and a patient that is observed or supervised in some way by a trainer is an opportunity for learning. And that learning comes in the conversation between the trainee and the trainer that happens after that activity is undertaken. So I think every day is an SLE, whether you write it down or not, okay? It, it, it has to be that. Um, I think that's part of where we um, where we went a little bit wrong with the, not a little bit wrong, but we sort of, the approach from the previous curriculum, the workplace-based assessments were, as they were called then, were quite new and competency-based medical education was really sort of exciting. And I think we went a little bit too far. We went too far down the road of using them as assessments. And actually they were, they were designed as vehicles for feedback, um, not as means of assessing people. And we, I think, slightly corrupted them um, with the way that we used to use them. And we're trying to swing the pendulum back now to using them as a document of, a documentation of an educational encounter rather than a means of saying whether someone was satisfactory or not. So there used to be a kind of I used to get the feeling that people thought the assessments were the learning and that's absolutely not the case. They just record what's happened and you can still learn without the piece of paper. It's just that you can't show anyone else what what you learned. Um, and and I think that um, trying to change that that culture is something that we as consultants need to do, but also it's something that the trainees themselves can um, can drive in the way that they approach um, their learning and how they approach consultants, asking them to complete this paperwork and um, and also when they become consultants themselves, how they how they approach assessment and um, and training. And I think there really does the, that. Hopefully there will be a sort of culture shift amongst the trainee body where they see these tools as not a box to be ticked, but as actually something that's useful to guide their development and learning. 
we we just talked about the the idea of you know that one rebadging of, of um, the systemic uh, sorry the the uh, structured learning events from the workplace based assessment. We've also had a bit of a nomenclature change between competencies and capabilities. And I don't know if either of you want to just talk through the thinking behind that as well. Aidan's pointed at you, Ben. <laughs> Aidan's pointing at me. And I, do you know what? I, I, I'm not sure I've really grasped the difference myself. And I think in my brain, the difference between competence, which is which is usually around a skill, is is a, is, is a very precisely defined skill put in a Venflon. But we would all recognize that putting in a Venflon in a fit, healthy, vasodilated 25-year-old is very different to putting a Venflon in a neodate, and it's very different to putting in a Venflon uh, in the post-chemotherapy, uh, every vein's been shot away. So you know, in the middle of the night, in the dark, in the, in the far corner. And I think capability, in, in my understanding, is about the totality of application of a skill in 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 all circumstances rather than rather than trying to define that in terms of procedural steps i'll, I'll move us on a little bit so i don't know if either of you want, want to come in on this one i i just thought what what do you think have been the main challenges. You've both been sitting on the on the curriculum rewrite group. What what do you think have been the main challenges in coming up with a new curriculum? Wow, uh, where to start? It's it's such a lot of work, uh, and if you try and write down the whole of anesthesia, it's um, it's impossible. You'll always leave something out, and you might always uh, disenfranchise a particular. Um, uh, branch of anesthesia. I think actually when, when we sat down, we had the 14 high high level arc, like outcomes at the GM that we sort of had to uh, describe the whole of anesthesia in and actually just sitting down and making the sentences, those 14 sentences that describe what an anesthetist is. And even we had one sentence or two sentences just to describe what should a CCT holder in anesthesia be able to do. That was actually quite difficult to do, uh, which seems ridiculous that, you know, a bunch of anesthetists sitting around a table can't say what they do. Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. But actually, that was really hard. But once we had sort of cracked it, that was then kind of the, the basis on on which to do everything else. And I think it was actually really good that we were forced to do that because it made us see everything else in a kind of an overarching way rather than trying to go in down into the nitty gritty, um, which is the way the previous curriculum was was defined. And then, of course, uh, you know, just making sure you don't leave anything out. There were the whole organizational aspects which were really tricky and are still um, are still tricky uh, in terms of implementation and, and unforeseen consequences. But um, I think we're starting to work through those. Um, as we go along. Ben, have you have you had any anything you want to add there? What do you think has been the challenge? So I guess for me, the thing that we have wrestled with the most has been that piece that's about what the curriculum should be trying to do. And I think, as Aidan says, we we went way too deep into the competency based piece uh, with the previous iteration. And we've got very stuck in a paradigm which is around measurement of performance or providing evidence of performance. And to a certain extent, that is driven by the regulator. Uh, the GMC has a responsibility that anaesthetists with CCTs are competent. 
and they need to see that we have a, an assessment structure which quality assures the product. And I, and I understand that. But I think what the last iteration of the curriculum failed to do was to support development and trying to switch the mindset of a big group of people away from that measurement quality assurance paradigm towards a signposting developmental supporting progress mindset actually has been uh, the challenge that I have wrestled with the most. I think we've gone some of the way. I think if you want a personal opinion, I don't think we've gone far enough, but I'm very conscious that in that group that I was very much out on, on one wing, perhaps, uh, of those opinions. But I think what we have achieved in this iteration, in this iteration of the curriculum is to emphasize the necessity to to signpost training opportunity, to support development, to reflect on practice, uh, while necessarily having to retain some of that uh, obligation for us to provide evidence to the regulator that what we are providing at the end of it is competent anaesthetists. I think the thing I found um, mainly most challenging was the, as well, the, and I, it's a, a learning thing for me, was appreciating the the politics involved in trying to, uh, you know, you, you want to do the best for trainees, fundamentally, you want to do the best for patients, you want to do the best for your colleagues and and the specialty, specialities that have those professional interrelationships with anesthesia. You, there, there's so many people and so many vested interests and vested interest groups in this um, that it becomes very difficult, I think, in order to try and, try and uh, you know, keep all those people on board. I was just going to sort of ask just one final question, really, and I guess it's a, an opportunity for both of you to sort of summarise and draw this to a close. So what do you think are the kind of the, the strengths and weaknesses overall? If you're going to summarise what you like about the new curriculum, what, what would it be? I like the new structure. I like the fact that the break is at ST4. Um, because I did my master's dissertation, I did about failure in the primary FRCA, and uh, a lot of people just uh, feel very lost at that point um, when they drop out of training. And I think that will be really helpful to keep people in training. So I think that's really good. I think pushing the ICU towards the start of training is also good because uh, it gives people those skills early and also allows them to tailor the last bit of their training to what they um, are actually going to be doing as a consultant. And I think the I hope that the ethos and the culture around assessment um, will change as well. So I, I think those are kind of my my three hopes uh, or things I'm looking forward to in the new curriculum. Go on, Ben, why don't you give us some what, what do you feel positive about? So I think for me, it's a real step forward that we are starting to talk about what we do rather than what we are watching while we do it. And I think talking about the skills of an anaesthetist rather than the application of, of anesthesia to, to surgical disciplines is really important. And looking at the high level learning outcomes in their entirety gives a much more holistic 
and comprehensive perspective on what anaesthetists bring to the totality of patient care. And I think in a way that we didn't perhaps uh, before. So I think that's really important to me. What I hope is that we have created a shift away from assessment as measurement towards developmental conversations to support progress. And, and it's so crucial that we use the assessment framework as it is uh, as it as it is defined to to drive progression rather than to measure progress uh, and if we can get that right then what we have done is 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 enormously helpful uh, and will be very useful i hope for the trainees that take part in our programs from now on well that seems like a really good place to leave our conversation i think on a on a a positive note with a you know a forward-looking view uh, so so thanks very much ben thanks aiden for your time and your thoughts it's been a really interesting and, and hopefully helpful discussion so thanks a lot thank you for listening to this royal college of anaesthetists podcast make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favorite podcatcher also If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon.